I don't know if you picked a prayer out of the purple Lenten prayer book that were in the lobby, uh, but the one I fixated on this week began with the phrase, Lord, give us a vision of the world as your love would have it. And then close with a line that went something like, and give us the courage to build it through our Lord Jesus Christ. I'm hopeful that you will uh, take one of those purple prayer booklets and find a prayer to consider daily uh, through this period of Lent. I may have told this story before, and since I've been here for more than a decade now, it's likely that I have. Uh, But forgive me for telling it again this morning. Uh, All of us look back at different things we've done in our lives with some measure of regret. And one of the things I did that was particularly foolish um, was at a church more than two decades ago. Um, I had a family, a couple in the church that informed me that they were divorcing. And so I, of course, tried to reach out to them and talk to them about that. The guy would talk to me. The girl would not. She would not say anything to me at all. And uh, I was perplexed by this. I pursued the lady and her family many times. They would not say anything to me at all about it. But they were in church every week, but they just wouldn't talk to me about this at all. After some talking with the husband, the husband asked me if I would go to the court date with him. I agreed to do that. Not my intention ever to take sides, but I wanted to see what was happening and talk to about this, talk to them about this. And so before they actually went into the courtroom, uh, the woman and her lawyer and the husband and me sat in a conference room together to discuss the arrangements of what was going to happen. And I learned very quickly in that meeting that the husband was signing away all custody and visitation rights to the wife. And that seemed a little bit odd to me. Uh, it was a very young couple. And I said, are you, are you sure you want to do that? And he goes, I don't know. I said, well, don't you think at some point your baby daughter will want to know that her daddy loved her? Even if things don't work out between the parents, don't you think it makes some sense to have some measure of visitation rights? And the wife was obviously not happy with me at that moment because I was throwing a wrench into a carefully crafted plan to exclude dad from any participation in the life of the daughter. But still, she said nothing to me. And rather than ending and finalizing the divorce that day, uh, the judge issued a continuance till the husband could get some legal counsel and talk about the need to maybe have some visitation rights in some way to communicate his love to his daughter. I didn't really like getting involved in that way, but it seemed wise to do that. And um, I learned the next day what was really going on. Okay, because at this point I've extended the length of the trial. I've increased the costs for everyone. I've made a deal that was on the table fall apart because it seemed wise for the sake of a little girl. But finally, the lady and her family spoke to me. These are pillars in my church. And they said, 
Pastor, you didn't understand. He was refusing to stop selling drugs out of their apartment. And I went, oh. That does change the story a little bit. I mean, if you've been told again and again and again to stop putting your family at risk and all this, there probably does have to come a time where you draw a line and say, it's not fair to endanger the family by doing drug deals in the apartment. And I felt like I had blundered, <laughs> stumbled into a mess and created a mess. And so I went to the family, of course, and said, I am, I am deeply apologetic. I am so sorry. I didn't know. I didn't understand. I should have kept my mouth shut. Shouldn't have said anything until I understood. I said, will you please forgive me? Will you please forgive me? And they did. They forgave me. And we became good friends. And we are still good friends to this day because they understood a really important fact about the family of God and about Christians in general. And that is, none of us are perfect and we forgive. We forgive. This is Luke chapter five, beginning in verse 17. I would invite you to stand for the reading of the gospel of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Luke chapter five, verse 17. One day Jesus was teaching and Pharisees and teachers of the law were sitting there and the power of the Lord was with Jesus to heal the sick. Some men came carrying a paralyzed man on a mat and tried to take him into the house to lay him before Jesus. When they could not find a way to do this because of the crowd, they went up on the roof and lowered him on his mat through the tiles into the middle of the crowd right in front of Jesus. When Jesus saw their faith, he said, friend, your sins are forgiven. The Pharisees and teachers of the law began thinking to themselves, who is this fellow who speaks blasphemy? Who can forgive sins but God alone? Jesus knew what they were thinking and asked, why are you thinking these things in your hearts? Which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up and walk? But I want you to know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. So he said to the paralyzed man, I tell you, get up, take your mat, and go home. Immediately he stood up in front of them, took what he had been lying on, and went home praising God. Everyone was amazed and gave praise to God. They were filled with awe and said, we have seen remarkable things today. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Jesus has authority to forgive sins, period. Whatever anyone else has to say about sin, Jesus has the last word. 
He does set up conditions, however, through which sins may be forgiven. This isn't the only time in Scripture where Jesus forgives sins. You know the story from Luke 17. There are 10 lepers. Jesus is traveling along the border between Galilee and Samaria. He runs into 10 lepers. They're yelling out the cautionary words they were required to yell. Unclean, unclean. Because you can't be in company with people who have a disease. And so you maintain the separation. And when Jesus sees them and they talk to him, their words are, Jesus, Master, have pity on us. And Jesus said to them, go, show yourselves to the priest as is required by the law. And so they turn and they go and show themselves to the priest. And it, the scripture says, as they went, they were healed. And the reason to be going to the priest was the priest had to document, being the pseudo-doctor of his day, the priest had to document that the healing had actually happened and that they could return into the company of society. And as they went, they're healed. But one of them turns and comes back to Jesus and says thank you and praises God. And Jesus wonders aloud, were not all ten cleansed? Where are the other nine? Has no one returned to give praise to God except this one foreigner? Then he said to him, rise and go. Your faith has made you well. That little phrase, made you well, is interesting because he's already been healed. So what is there to make well in this guy's life if he's already been healed? And it's specifically this. If you study the scripture carefully, the word used there for made well is the same word Jesus uses when he says, salvation has come to this house today in the story of Zacchaeus. Made well means salvation, means forgiveness of sins. And Jesus pronounces forgiveness of sins because he has authority to forgive sins. Any sins, all sins. Do you remember back to the time that Carla Sundberg came and spoke to here, spoke to us? I think it was a faith promise service. Could have been spiritual deepening week. Um, I think it's one Nancy thinks it's the other. We can't remember. She came and she told us a story of living in one of those concrete block apartment houses in Russia where she was a missionary. And how she began to get to know her neighbors and talk to the people in her building. And eventually there was this old guy who lived in the apartment next to hers. And he began to hear the message of the good news of Jesus Christ. And, and they had a conversation one day. And he said to her, I, I enjoy having you a neighbor. It's great. But, you know, I can never be forgiven. And she says, why would you think that? Jesus will forgive anyone. He says, but you don't know how much I've done. You don't know how terrible of a person I have been. And she said, it doesn't matter what you've done. Jesus Christ will forgive you. He said, I'm a former chairman of the Communist Party in Moscow. And given his age, she knew what time and period that was and the atrocities that had been committed. And she assured him, Jesus will forgive you. And forgiveness can be yours because it's not based on who we are or what we've done. Jesus is the one who has the power to forgive sins. And what's in our past does not matter. He will forgive us. 
Forgiveness is never based on what we think is possible. It is based on the authority of Jesus Christ. I don't know if you watch mysteries on TV, but if you know who G.K. Chesterton is, he wrote a bunch of really interesting murder mysteries in which the chief detective is a guy named Father Brown. You can still watch them on TV. I think they're on PBS or something. They're very interesting mysteries. I enjoy the stories, but Father Brown is a priest, and he helps catch the bad guys. And unlike any other mystery show you're ever going to watch on TV, once he catches the bad guys, he al- it always comes to this. He goes, hope is not lost. If you will admit your guilt, God will forgive you. Every time. Who's, who's expecting a gospel presentation on PBS, right? But every time he says that, and he says, your consequences aren't going to evaporate. Most of the time he says, you're going to hang, but it's not the worst thing. The worst thing would be to be separated from God for eternity. And so there's always this, this constant witness to the fact that Jesus Christ forgives. That's who we are about, isn't it? It's not too late for you, he says. Admit your guilt. God will forgive you. You can die in peace. These are the conditions, really, that Jesus sets for all of us, isn't it? Admit your guilt. Ask for your forgiveness. Repent. God will forgive. I believe the church teaches that asking for and receiving forgiveness requires repentance. Repentance means a couple of things. It means a sorrowful turning away from our sins. You say, where's that in scripture? Well, it's Jesus's entire message. When he begins preaching in Mark 1, 14 and 15, these are the words you hear. Jesus went into Galilee, proclaiming the good news of God. The time has come, he said, The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. So repentance is critical to receiving the forgiveness of God. But there's another piece that's critical. And this isn't something that has to happen initially, but it's a commitment that Christians make over time consistently in order to be confident that we've received the forgiveness of God. And that is something you can read about in Matthew 17. It's the parable of the unmerciful servant. Uh, But the concept is simply this. In order to be forgiven, you must also forgive, right? That's part of what we understand. And here's why that's really an important part of our salvation. And you and I know that forgiveness is a long-term problem for the church of Jesus Christ. And here's why. We humans keep on offending. And we humans keep on getting offended. This problem never goes away. And so we must continually tend forgiveness in our lives. Just like pulling dandelions from a yard. 
I mean, you know, the minute you get all the weeds out of your yard, your neighbor's yard goes to seed and reseeds your whole yard because there is no end to dandelions this side of heaven. You have to tend. You must tend. You never outgrow the need to forgive others and you never outgrow the need of forgiveness yourself. I mean, let's face it. We say stupid things. We say careless things. We say things at the wrong time. We tell the truth when we should have just kept our mouths shut. If we're honest, sometimes we say things that are mean or hurtful on purpose. And I haven't even started talking about the things that we actually do beyond what we say. Those things, all forgivable, but there's a process involved. We often talk about the sequence in Matthew 18, which is a reconciliation sequence where we're told how to resolve problems between us and our friend or our neighbor or our brother or sister. And uh, we're reminded that if you're at church praying, making your offering, and you remember that your brother has something against you, it's your job to leave church, go find your brother, and be reconciled to your brother and sister first before you worship God. Because reconciliation is a prelude to true worship. You can't come in and say, God, I love you, and I, and I worship you, and I honor you, while you are unwilling to honor him by obeying him. And part of obeying him is to taking the initiative to make things right between you and your brother who doesn't like you. Now, the Bible also says, live at peace with one another as much as it lies within you, right? We can't make someone live in peace with us. So there's limits to what we can do. But the responsibility lays on us to initiate reconciliation because we have received much mercy we extend much mercy. This is especially true where kids and parents are concerned. If we're honest, we have to say that some parents do a lousy job of raising their kids. Some regret what they have done or left undone. They need to ask for forgiveness God will forgive them. Hopefully their children will. Some kids had parents who did a lousy job of raising them. And for their own sake, the sake of the children, the kids need to forgive the parents. Because carrying the grudge of hating parents is too heavy for anyone to carry. Forgiving doesn't let them off the hook, those lousy parents. Forgiving doesn't say that what happened in the past is right or okay or, or didn't matter much. Forgiving doesn't mean you have to trust people who continue to injure you. What forgiving does mean is we hand off the debt to God and we let him carry the grudge for us. We don't seek revenge. We affirm the passage of scripture that says, revenge is mine, saith the Lord, right? We hand that off 
to him to collect. And then we have to begin to pray for our enemies, which is difficult, but the Spirit will help us. Then we have to commit not to return evil actions to them who may very well deserve them. And then we have to ask God in prayer to help us embrace the forgiveness we're choosing to issue. Because you understand there's a a piece of forgiveness that is a matter of the will and there's a piece of forgiveness that is a matter of the heart and the thing don't necessarily work simultaneously together. We make choices we don't necessarily feel, right? If I know I have to forgive, I issue the forgiveness. And then I say, Lord, help me because I'd rather smack him in the head. But if the Father answers our prayer, he will work in us and change us, and we can slowly over time release the grudges that we carry, the burdens that we carry. What does it say? Let's run the race set before us, throwing off the the weights and hindrances that slow us down so that we can fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and the perfecter of our faith. Isn't that what Hebrews 12 tells us to do? When you forgive others, you free yourself. When you forgive others, you free yourself. There's another category though. There are folks who even though they have asked God to forgive them, like the chairman of the Communist Party, cannot believe that God will or can forgive them because they cannot forgive themselves. But I would remind anyone in that situation, it is Jesus and not you who sets the conditions for forgiveness. And Jesus is very, very specific. This is what John wrote. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. That's as simple as a statement as we can have, right? If we will confess our sins, if we will repent of our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins. There it is, plainly. Will we believe his word? Will we believe that he can forgive us? Will we ask for his assistance to believe that we can be forgiven? Now, it's interesting to me that one of the things that Jesus says to his disciples just before he goes to Calvary's cross is he gives them a unique authority This is John 20, 21. Again, Jesus said, these are the disciples, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. And with that, he breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive anyone's sins, their sins are forgiven. If you do not forgive them, they are not forgiven. This is Jesus 
giving his disciples the right to pronounce forgiveness of sins. Now, I don't believe for a second that this is Jesus saying, you can come up with your own categories for forgiving of sins. But I think what this is, is that these disciples know the gospel of the kingdom of God so well, they know what Jesus' requirements are for the forgiveness of sins so well that they can see when someone has repented. And they can pronounce the forgiveness of God to all those who have met Jesus' requirements for forgiveness. Because I think there are folks who just won't believe it's possible. And sometimes you need the words of a brother or sister to speak Jesus' words out loud to you in your ear. Maybe it's hard for you to hear the voice of Jesus saying, I forgive you. Maybe it's hard to accept that you are forgiven. But when the saints understand that you have met the criterion that Jesus has articulated, it then becomes appropriate to have someone speak the forgiveness of Christ over you if you have repented, if you have asked for forgiveness, if you have turned from your sinful ways. No matter what you feel about it, I can say, Christ forgives you. Have you repented? Have you asked for forgiveness for what you have done or who you have been? Have you turned from your sinful ways? Is it your desire to please Christ? And if so, I can say with joy, Christ has forgiven you. One of the things that was genius about John Wesley's preaching is he talked about something called the doctrine of assurance. And he based that preaching on the inner testimony of the Holy Spirit that once we became a child of God, the Holy Spirit would confirm in our hearts that this was indeed true. And I believe that if we ask the Spirit to confirm that for us, that Jesus has indeed forgiven us, that he will do that. And if it's true of you that you have trouble believing that God will forgive you, what I'd like to invite you to do is to meet me right there. And you and I will talk and pray together. And I will assure you if you've met the conditions that Jesus has established, that he will and has forgiven you. Because that's what entry into the kingdom of God requires. That's what it means to become a son and daughter of Jesus Christ, to know our sins forgiven, to receive the down payment of the Holy Spirit and have confidence that we can be with him forever. So if you need to have your confidence bolstered, Meet me right over there. We'll talk. If you're too shy to meet me over here, catch me after the service. We'll talk. Because on earth, Jesus has the authority to forgive sins. And in heaven, Jesus has the authority to forgive sins. And nothing we can say or do 
has any impact on Jesus' authority to forgive sins. His forgiveness is designed for us. May we embrace it by repenting and turning to him. Lord Jesus, we are so grateful that on Calvary's cross, by your shed blood, you freed us from our sins. You made it possible to become your sons and daughters and that we can know the joy of fellowship with you now and always. Seal to our hearts the joy of our salvation. Remind us again and again of our need to forgive others. And unite us, Lord, we pray, that we may honor you now and all of our days. And now may the God of peace guard your hearts in Christ Jesus. And may you live in the joy of his forgiveness now and always. Amen.